Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1974. And we want to set a give you a podcast that is about everything. It's about monsters and classic movies and egotism and scientists. And oh, it's really above all about Mel Brooks. The movie, Young Frankenstein. everyone and welcome to unspooled i am paul Shear. i am a uh, a film enjoyer a lover of film i have a letterbox account and i recently went to town on uh all the next generation films on letterbox i watched them all back to back and i had a lot of thoughts amy uh <laughs> but you write your reviews uh often for the new york times and i love reading your stuff you are an amazing critic and together we get into discussions here on the show that some people are like, that's what they're focused on. And we're like, yeah, we're going to go in weird places. And today we get to talk about a movie that I think makes a very strong statement for being on our list, our best 100 films list, a Mel Brooks film called Young Frankenstein. Yeah, a film that when people say, what is one of the greatest comedies ever made? This would be the list that they would put on to blast off into outer space balls. And I'm so happy to go back and watch this film. I am a giant Gene Wilder obsessive. Love me some Terry Gar. Love me some Madeline Kahn. Love me some everybody. So this is a movie that's just heavy hitter after heavy hitter, electrocuting every little bit of my pleasure sensors. I also think this is a, a movie where we have to ask ourselves, okay, after the producers and Blazing Saddles, why is Young Frankenstein kind of an outlier in the type of film that Mel Brooks makes as far as being uh, visually stunning? Um, a film that he's not in and a film that I think is more narrative than the ones that follow it. So we're going to kind of dig into that as well. Yeah. And the fact that I would say that this is by far Mel Brooks's most just flat out beautiful film. Absolutely yes. stunning. And I think the cinematography adds things to it beyond just beauty. It adds, I think, resonance, humor. I think it holds it all together. And that is definitely something we have to get into. I also think that in this conversation, we got to talk about what could have been, what should have been, and who is telling the truth. This movie has a lot of people saying a lot of stuff about how it came to be. And we don't really know anyone's perspective, but we do a good job of trying to explain all of them to you. So Amy, without any further ado, it's Unspooled! 
The year is 1974, and Mel Brooks is on the set of Blazing Saddles with his star, Gene Wilder. They've already made another film together, The Producers, when Gene says, hey, I have an idea for our next movie. Frankenstein. At first, Mel is like, nah, there, there are too many dumb Frankenstein sequels in the world. But Gene is like, we can do a better one. We'll do it like the original, and I'll help you write it. Now, Mel Brooks does love Frankenstein. When he was a kid, he used to be too afraid to sleep outside on the fire escape during really hot summers in Brooklyn because he was scared that Frankenstein would get him. His mom was like, do you know how hard it would be for Frankenstein to get all the way from Europe to here? He'd have to get a cab. He's still dock. Oh, it's impossible. Didn't matter. Still wouldn't sleep outside. When he was eight, Mel Brooks used to crack up his best friend by singing Putting on the Ritz like Boris Karloff. It he puts that scene in the movie. He actually doesn't want to put that scene in the movie, but Gene Wilder convinces him that it will kill, and it does. But Mel's bigger challenge is that he has to convince the studios to make his script with his one major condition. In the year of 1974, you have to let us make this movie in black and white. Young Frankenstein is the story of Frankenstein, the scientist, the monster, the rampage, but updated to be about his grandson, a grandson who doesn't want the name Frankenstein, who knows every mistake that his ancestor made and vows not to repeat them, but then does. And it stars everyone that Mel loves. You have Gene Wilder as Dr. Frederick von Frankenstein. Uh, You have Peter Boyle as the monster, Marty Feldman as Igor, uh, Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher. Uh, Madeline Kahn as the doctor's stuffy fiance Elizabeth, Gene Hackman as the blind man Harold, and it more or less introduces Terry Garr as Inga. The movie opens on December 15th, 1974, and it is a huge hit. It is the number three box office success of the year. The number two, Blazing Saddles. Yes, Mel Brooks had two films in the top five that year, a feat that no other filmmaker has pulled off since. Challenges on. So what was in the zeitgeist that weekend? It was another very loving and affectionate send-up of a genre, a song that respects the power of lightning. Even if it's a little bit frightening, it is Carl Douglas and Kung Fu fighting. Everybody was Kung Fu Wow. 74, a silly year. I mean, really, (laughs) like a year for that all to converge these two movies, that song. uh, We were in a weird time. I got to say, Amy, I think if you were to uh, threaten me with a lightning bolt right now, I would have to say Young Frankenstein, my favorite. And more importantly, I think the best Mel Brooks film. Whoa, that's huge. Yeah. Because I really like Young Frankenstein, but I also really like Blazing Saddles and I really like The Producers, which was the very first one I ever saw. And so it has a special spot in my heart. You know, I think there's something really interesting about this film, especially in the way that it follows the first two. You know, the first one, The Producers, to me feels like the most unfiltered Mel Brooks Here's a guy who has been working, you know, behind the scenes on your show of shows, and he sees all this kind of 
stuff going on in Hollywood. You know, it's a personal story. I feel like it's his story in a way, even though he's not putting on a musical about Hitler, but it's his sensibility 100%. Then you go into Blazing Saddles, which is, and there's a lot of different ways or stories that you can hear this. You know, it's a little bit more of a, a script written by a writer's room. Richard Pryor plays a very big part in helping develop the point of view for that film and was attached to play the role that Cleavon Little goes to play. So it's Mel Brooks infused with, I think, a lot of different perspectives and jokes. And then this, I think, is really unique because this film is very much a Mel Brooks film. But It truly is a collaboration with Gene Wilder. And I think that Gene Wilder forced Mel Brooks out of some Brooksian habits, right? Or instincts. And I think there are instincts that we see as Mel Brooks' career continues. But this is a really interesting film because I think, even though it's so heightened, it might be, besides the producers, his most grounded film. Well, yeah, Young Frankenstein has this tone that I think pairs really well with us talking about like what we do in the shadows. This idea of taking a heightened world and doing it so deadpan and so solemn the whole way through that it feels just realistic, that interesting balance where like there's very few moments in this movie where people are over the top mugging. You know, it it doesn't ever wink at what exactly it is that it's trying to do. Yeah, I think that part of that is... Gene Wilder, the guiding light here. First of all, Gene Wilder doesn't want Mel Brooks to be in the film. He's like, you can't be in the film because when you're in the film, it signals to the audience, oh, it's a Mel Brooks film. Oh, it's a joke. And he was really specific. Mel Brooks, you know, kept on trying to get in there, but he had to agree he wouldn't do this. And I will take a little bit of not... I won't correct it, but I will say that I've heard a lot of different things. This is really more of Gene Wilder's idea that he had been fleshing out and working on and writing on legal pads and Mel Brooks warmed up to it, got involved in it. But it really was Gene Wilder spearheading this thing that he wanted to do. And he would throw ideas to Mel and Mel would throw it back, but it was a lot more of his vision. And I actually think that they pair really well together. I love Gene Wilder in, obviously, The Producers and in Blazing Saddles. But here, we get to see a more unhinged Gene Wilder that I really like. Like, we normally see Gene Wilder as, like, a put-upon straight man. You know, I think about, like, The Producers being a great role. He's very calm, cool, collected in Blazing Saddles. Here, he's kind of a maniac. He's kind of hitting everything that he does so well Like, you get to see him be cool, you get to see him be crazy, you get to see him be manic, but he is not playing low status in this at all. Like, this is a high-status character who is, yes, put upon by people at certain points, but he is in control here. And I don't know, I I, I think it might be my favorite Gene Wilder performance, which is even tough to argue next to something like Willy Wonka, too. I mean... That's really hard. He's so great. I know, that's a tricky one. And I don't know if I... I fully believe it. But I do think his imprint of what is funny is really on this film. And I think this movie is great because of what Mel Brooks brought to it. And I think this battle of creatives here is really interesting. And we talked about this last week with, you know, uh, Taika and Jermaine. 
you know, I think that they're two people with very strong points of view, and I think they were able to work really well together to create something really interesting. I think the same thing with Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. Like, they're not the same. They work together great, but they balance instincts. Well, I want to dig in a little bit to the to the Gene Wilder of it all, mm-hmm. because his performance here as Dr. Frankenstein, and I actually want to play like his first announcement of his name, this idea of like, I am distancing myself from that crazy person. Questions before we proceed. I have one question, Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. This is where he starts. You know, we're like six minutes into the movie. He's acting like a guy who's trying to hold it all together, confident, in charge of this very modern classroom, which apparently is taking place in Baltimore. I wouldn't have guessed that. I beg your pardon? My name, it's pronounced Frankenstein. But aren't you the grandson of the famous Dr. Victor Frankenstein, who went into graveyards, dug up freshly buried corpses, and transformed dead components into- Yes, yes, yes. We all know what he did. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science and not because of my accidental relationship to a famous cuckoo. (laughs) No sooner than like four minutes later, this man is a raving maniac. Sir, I am a scientist, not a philosopher. You have more chance of reanimating this scalpel than you have of mending a broken nervous system. But what about your grandfather's work, sir? My grandfather's work was doo-doo. I mean, when he's talking about a broken nervous system, that is him. He is a broken nerve. His hair looks like a broken and frayed nerve. If somebody's like your mom yelling at you, you're on my last frayed nerve. That is what he is in this movie. He like, he doesn't build to that point. He just gets there right out of the box. And I adore that. And by the way, I just have to squeeze this in right here before we go any further. Did the voice of that student sound at all familiar to you? Oh, now, yes, it does. And now why can't I place it? All right, tell me who it is. I'll play the clip. Young, I can just... I said get to work, and while Papa Smurf is away, he would want me to be the boss. The head honcho, numero Smurfo. Now look here, Brainy. Who do you think you are? Um, you're your natural leader? <laughs> he grew up to be the voice of Brainy Smurf. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) Isn't that perfect? And Brady Smurf was basically like this. A very overconfident intellectual asshole. (laughs) That's amazing. I'll tell you, this opening scene is great because this is a film that in many ways is a parody of Frankenstein, but done in a really interesting way. And I think the biggest thing that separates this film from just being a parody is it continues the story. There have been so many versions of Frankenstein, you know, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, that actually uh, the grandson of Frankenstein was introduced in one of these old universal horror movies. And if you look at clips of the grandson, he's got curly hair just like Gene Wilder. But I like the idea that it's a continuation. It's in the Frankenstein universe to a certain extent. Would you say this is a sequel or would you say this is a requel? What would you call this? I would call it a sequel. Really? Straight up sequel? Yeah. I would call it a sequel because it uses the same props, uh, which let's get into it right now. One of the things about this film and why it looks and feels of the time of the original Frankenstein films is because they were able to get 
a lot of the same props that were used in those universal horror films. Yeah, the, the Kenneth Strickfaden ones. He was still there. He still had the props in his garage. He brought them in and they still worked. They still lit up. And by the way, I think that they look great because they are shot the same way that, that the original films are. That black and white makes everything look cooler and more interesting. And this is why, and you alluded to it in the intro, you know, the studio wanted to shoot this movie in color. It's 1974. There's no way a black and white film and a black and white film shot in the way it's shot. I mean, it is. It is beautiful. Gorgeous. It is stunning. I mean, a lot of that is like the the cinematographer being like, what they're going to try to do to Mel, he's advising him. They're going to try to make you shoot this on color. And then they're going to claim they're going to tint it to black and white. And then not only is it going to look a little muddier and uglier, that means they can probably release it on color if they want to later on. Absolutely not. You need to draw the line and say, we're only going to use black and white film. We're only going to do this the proper way because that's how you make it look this beautiful. Oh, it's unbelievable. I almost don't like looking at the behind the scenes photos because it's like, oh, right. This was a movie shot in the 70s. It feels like a film that was shot in the 40s and the 50s. I mean, even down to the way it was edited, uh, you know, where it feels like the film reel rolls out. Like, you know, it's those cuts. It's not there's no fades. It's like cut to black. Or open on a new scene. Yeah, or do those awesome wipes. Reep, reep. The irises. The pacing of the film. The conversation style of the film. Where it's not cut like rapid, rapid, rapid. But the scenes hold. Yes, and I think that it's Mel Brooks' best directed film as far as behind the camera. The cinematography is great. And I think that's something that often falls apart in parody film like does it look does it feel like this no they just go for the jokes and i think you know now you know when you see something like a pop star uh you know that is caught in a in a great way like they they have a more style to it i think you know part of imitating or making fun of these movies is about really capturing the style so anyway yeah you have this movie that's in 1974 in black and white a, a true homage and so to answer your question that you asked a long time ago it is truly a sequel because we're using the same props we're on the same back lot we're in the same sets our characters are related our character is set up i believe this is a sequel and it's not a parody it's not a parody it's it is a comedic version of it and i think these characters are acting within their own perspectives not winking at the audience well, that is why I think the tone is so important in the camera work, because like you can only capture that when you love the 1931 film, the 1931 original so deeply that you can do it, that you can just do it and not be making fun of it. I mean, one of the moments that I love um, hearing from behind the set is like Mel Brooks explaining to the cinematographer what he needed and why exactly. As the camera moved in for a shot of the Marty Feldman and Glass Jar, the faces, and the camera wobbled a little bit, and he said, cut. I said, no, Jerry, I say cut. You're the cinematographer. I'm the only one who ever says cut. He says, but there was a wobble. I said, Jerry, I want that wobble. I want trundling. Like James Whale, I want you to trundle in, a little shaky. I don't want you to zoom. There'll be no zooms. I don't want anything smooth. I don't want anything that says 1974 or 5. I want something that says 1931. Because he's right. You just do one even slightly modern gag in here. And I feel like you're taking out one brick in the castle wall and the whole thing falls down. You have one reference to, I don't know, Alice Cooper. And the whole thing just falls apart. 
right? Right. You have to commit completely into living in the world. And I think that that maybe is part of part of even a Gene Wilder or Mel Brooks's like aesthetic at whole. Like one of the things that Terry Garr said that uh, Gene Wilder would tell her between takes is like, just do this as seriously as you can. And that is them doing it as seriously as they can, both as both in his acting performances and in just the execution of the movie. Right. And I think that the character that Marty Feldman plays in this film, Igor, Igor, he is doing the most winking at the camera. He'll turn to the camera. There's one there's one moment where, you know, Frankenstein's experiment seemingly goes poorly. And, you know, Gene Wilder says, I'm going to handle this with dignity and grace. And then does one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie where he just starts beating the body. He's like, you son of a bitch bastard, son of a bitch bastard. And just like, really has a, a momentary freak out and then walks off screen. And then Marty Feldman turns to the camera and goes, huh, dignity and grace. And it's like, no, we didn't even need it. We didn't, we don't need that. Like, yeah, we just saw it. You set it up, you paid it off. You don't need to then tip your hat on top of it. Like, you know, he's the only character that walks the biggest line between being in the film and out of the film. Like there are moments where I believe that this character is just smart and fucking with Gene Wilder. I pulled that clip for that exact same reason. Oh my God. Because that is exactly the one line that I would take out of this movie (laughs) because it, yeah, it really does. It really does stumble. You're like, I don't need that. I don't need you to look at the camera. Don't do it. And I'm kind of surprised he didn't edit it out because he was pretty merciless, Mel Brooks was, in editing out the scenes that didn't work. You know, if you want, you can go online and, like, this movie starts with, gosh, like, 12, 15 minutes of will talk, the will of the original Frankenstein and all the villagers just freaking out and being angry about, like, not being in the will and blah, 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 blah. And it is so slow and so just unnecessary that I can't even believe it's there. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I had a charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Hello. Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I mean, one of the other things they delete, though, by is like an explanation of why the inspector has his wooden arm. Kevin I wouldn't Mars. have minded this, but I don't need the whole scene. Thank you. Oh, war wound? Nine. It was ripped out of its socket <laughs> by the fiendish monster that your grandfather created. I thought we might have a little chat. Oh. oh. <laughs> the trimming, the commitment. Yeah. This is kind of the yin and yang, the push and pull of Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks. This is the perfect mix of both of them because I do think, you know, and I know, and this is again, I guess up for debate. Like, 
you you were talking about how uh, Mel Brooks, when he was a kid, would sing "Putting on the Ritz" to his friend. You know, he wanted to put that in the movie. But then Gene Wilder is like, that was something I came up with in the movie that Mel didn't even want in the script. You know, but I thought that was so funny. Like, so there's a lot of like in in success in story time, like who is responsible for what. But I do believe that this is a movie where they both really balance a tone and the tone is never getting too serious or too joke light and never getting too, you know, not bold, but too broad and too joke heavy. It's like they found this middle ground that walks the whole film kind of perfectly. So you can have jokes like, wow, big knockers when, you know, Gene Wilder's holding Terry Garr and his face is in her breasts, but also you can have something a lot smaller and personal, you know, where you really are invested in this character of, you know, the grandson of Frankenstein. Like, I I believe this character. I believe his descent into madness. I mean, if we're going to chicken and egg it, I'm going to wind up giving Mel Brooks the credit because part of the foundational story here is that Mel Brooks meets Gene Wilder you know, a decade before this, when Gene Wilder is doing like a very serious Bertolt Brecht play with mm-hmm. Anne Bancroft, you know, uh, uh, who would become, wasn't at the time, Mel Brooks's wife. And Gene Wilder was having a real problem with the scene. He was like, I don't know how to do this scene. I'm supposed to be kind of like building this argument and I feel like I can't figure out how to do it right. And it's Mel Brooks who figures out how to turn the scene into what he called it almost like a like a dance performance or like a like a advertorial in the middle of the play to mm-hmm. figure out how to strat, how to kind of um, unite the worlds of comedy and self-awareness and drama when you're doing a drama. Right. In that moment, I think really like took Gene Wilder's career as he thought it was going and shifted it and was like, you can do comedy. You can be somebody else than you think you are. And I think cracked open the world of who Gene Wilder was going to become, which is a great gift to all of us. I will say Gene Wilder is probably one of my first four on-screen movie crushes. Thank you for that, Mel Brooks. But that was part of the thing. One of the things I think he even told Gene Gene Wilder at the time was he said, just be real and don't be afraid. So if you're saying that Mel Brooks is responsible for activating the comedy of Gene Wilder, I would say yes. Great. And I also think it underlines something that is important, which is Gene Wilder doesn't often play to comedy or he is incredibly gifted as comedic actor who I think grounds his performances still in the tradition that he had of being a serious actor. I think that you could see that back in the day of Leslie Nielsen, like playing things a little bit straight and and even his freakouts are ground. Like I could see those same freakouts potentially in a more serious play. Like I feel like it's, it, it's the way that he might freak out, but if we're going to say, what came first of young Frankenstein, I'm going to say Gene Wilder is responsible because Gene Wilder is the one who one winter afternoon in West Hampton, New York, he takes out a yellow pad and writes at the top of the page, young Frankenstein, and starts to answer a few questions about what would happen to him if in present day he was left Frankenstein's estate. And he called Mel Brooks and he said, I have this idea. And Mel was not excited. He's like, it's cute. It's whatever. Then Wilder's agent calls Mel Brooks and goes, look, I want to make a picture with you, Peter Boyle, and Marty Feldman. Okay, well, what's the idea? And he goes like, I don't know. I represent you guys, so we should make a movie with you guys. And Gene Wilder's like, I actually have 
you know, an idea. I actually have an idea that would be great. And he he wrote a scene and he sent it to uh, to his agent. His agent's like, this is great. Yes, let's make this movie. Let's get Mel Brooks on here. And, uh, and they're like, well, Mel Brooks is like, well, he won't even look at it because he won't direct anything that he didn't conceive. Um, and then he kind of got sucked into it. Wilder wrote the entire first draft of the script before Mel Brooks came in. And then together they started writing. But it was truly, this was Gene Wilder sitting by himself and getting that first draft done. And then what it became is this amazing collaboration. So I'm going to say Gene Wilder is responsible for Young Frankenstein, but Mel Brooks is responsible for Gene Wilder. So wait, why does nobody agree on how this movie came together? Because I heard the story that this was already underway and Mel Brooks was watching TV and he just happened to like come across um, the TV show that Marty Feldman used to have. And he was like, that guy, that guy's definitely my Igor. That guy looks like an Igor more than anybody I've ever seen. Because of course, those are Marty Feldman's real eyes, which I always thought when I was a kid watching this, like, that's the most amazing props. How did they put those fake eyeballs in that guy? How are his eyes doing that? But that is actually just what Marty Feldman looks like. And, you know, he's been asked about it through the years. Like, this is him explaining it on on air with uh, Johnny Carson. I'm 11 years old as an actor. Yeah. I read it. It was in the LA Times. I had a big article near the other day or an interview, Mm -hmm. I think it was. And they talked about your eyes. And you explained. About my, yeah. Yeah. It's not much to explain. I mean, it's sort of self-evident, isn't it? You know. But I mean, you have, you have a wide field of vision. Uh, I have Uh, a wide, it's it's peripheral vision on the, on this side. In other words, you see me very well from... I see you absolutely very well now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but? But if I look at it... Yeah. Then I look, then I, then I <laughs> oh, what a ring dong Oh, I, I stick, look. I stick. Yeah, but you mentioned that one of them was, was hypertension or something. Uh, Seriously, no, there's a lot of people this, do ask, you know. No, I was actually, I had a hypothyroid condition brought on by um, exhaustion. So uh, that... Uh, explains the excellent film, The Bulge. Right. Um, just coming into your living rooms now, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, until that point, I had not noticed, until they really bulged, I didn't notice that one was bulging that direction and one was bulging that direction, which is what happens. Yeah. Uh, we were gonna do- I mean, and he also was just full of different stories about how it happened. One of the stories I heard was that he was in a car accident and it made his eyes start to move that way. Another story I heard is that once he was stabbed in the head with a pencil when he was a little kid, I have no idea. One of the wrinkles is, you know, you just saw that movie Weird, of course, right? You were like in the original yeah. Weird. It, a lot of that movie is like Dr. Demento launching Weird Al's career by playing his parody songs. Like another parody song that Dr. Demento did play that was not by a Weird Al, and this person did not have the, go on to have the Weird Al career, was about Marty Feldman. You probably recognize the tune. Her head is growing bald. Her feet are twice her size. She says it's not her fault She's got Marty Feldman eyes She'll turn the sprinklers on you And dry you off with her thighs She'll confuse the hell out of you She's got Marty Feldman eyes No, Marty Feldman, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan. My, you know, my dad introduced me to this movie and I felt a connection to this guy. He's very funny. And, you know, in a tragic ending, like, you know, he dies while shooting this movie, Yellowbeard. He was sick too, like Marty Feldman, right? Well, he smoked five packs of cigarettes a day. 
Okay. Wow. So there you go. Yeah. But he would say like, he had a sense of humor. Like he said that in this movie, he became quote, the only guy to ever appear in a horror film without makeup. And then when people would ask him how he felt about having his eyes as an actor, if they held him back, they definitely didn't hold him back as a ladies man. He apparently was very, very active in cheating on his wife. Uh, but he said, if I aspired to be Robert Redford, I would have my eyes straightened and my nose fixed, and I would end up like every other lousy actor with two lines on Kojak. This way, I'm a novelty. You know, and God bless. And and he obviously is someone that Mel Brooks enjoys because Mel Brooks puts him in, you know, uh, the silent movie. He's also in uh, high anxiety. Like he pops up, you know, in a bunch of different things. You know, Marty Feldman to me is a very integral part to this film because in a way he is, I think, allowing the audience to watch a black and white movie. He seems to take the role of the assistant, the the helper, the Igor, the yes, master, yes, you know, and, and he's elevated, he's smarter, and he can kind of call Gene Wilder on his shit. And I think that that's what this movie needs is not necessarily somebody communicating to the audience like he does in that scene that you just pulled, but it's more that he is a voice of reason, as crazy as that might sound. Like there's that great moment where Gene Wilder is looking up, uh, you know, and yelling to him saying, oh, there, there might be thunder. And then all of a sudden you cut back to Gene Wilder and Marty Feldman's behind him. And he's like, oh, like he ran down that quickly because he's like, I'm not going to get hit by thunder. Like, I think that there is, there's something about the character that really flows interestingly in this film. It's it's the loosest part of the parody because it's against type and it is the only voice of reason and it's a subservient position being the voice of reason. So there's a, a lot of things that make this like a, a character that we don't often see, you know, has power, low status, been around. But fearless, I would say. Fearless, yes, exactly. Fearless, maybe not of lightning, but fearless in like, calling out Gene Wilder at every moment that he can. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Frederick? No. And in his own way, dominating scenes. Frederick. Well, why isn't it Frederick Frankenstein? It isn't. It's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? You know, famously seconds after this with Walk This Way. Walk this way. This way. Walk This Way, obviously inspiration for the Aerosmith song, Walk This Way, which I know you're like, that makes no sense, but it, it is. Technically, Steven Tyler was such a giant fan of this. He's like, I want to do a song of, like based on Young Frankenstein. Just had the title and then wrote the song afterwards. So I don't know how based on it it is, like more than just walk this way. Yeah, I heard they had the riff of a song, but they couldn't figure out what the words would be. And then they saw this movie and they're like, well, there we go. We'll just take that one. Walk this way. way. I, I love that. I mean, is that an old joke? I was trying to remember. Like, I feel like Walk This Way is a joke that goes back to Bugs Bunny, but I couldn't think of an exact example. 
Well, I think what's funny about it is it was always done the other way, right? Like walk this way. And then Gene Wilder would have taken the cane and done that. Like, oh, I'm no, you said walk this way and they flip it. Right. So he, Gene Wilder takes it at face value and he's like, no, 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 with the cane down the stairs. Like, like, <laughs> I think that's, that might be the, the flip of the joke. Or or maybe this is where it started. I who knows. Um, but just like you were saying, who is responsible? There are a lot of stories, and a lot of times, the stories that we continue to hear are the stories from the people who are alive. I sat down with Mel Brooks. He came on uh, How Did This Get Made, and I got to hang out with him one time as we were working on something. And um, he's amazing, and I think he can tell great stories. And as time passes, you might merge things or forget things. Like, you know, if you look back at a lot of Gene Wilder interviews, Gene Wilder tells a, a version of the story that's different than Mel Brooks's. You know, and you could only probably get the truth by having them together. Like, there's an argument scene uh, putting on the Ritz, just to go back to that scene, because it's if you pretty much uh, type in Gene Wilder, Mel Brooks argument, or this is the this is the thing they go back to, and and you'll hear some stories where it's like. We shot this scene and Mel Brooks didn't like it. And Gene Wilder begged and, and almost in tears said, we have to keep that scene in. And he did. And it became one of the defining scenes of the film. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Now, Gene Wilder tells it as saying, I wrote it, I pre- I showed it to Mel, and he's like, you can't do this. And he fought to put it in. Like, And maybe there's truth in the middle, which is, okay, we'll shoot it. And then when they shot it, Mel Brooks still felt the same way, and they put it in. So there's a lot of perspective, you know, in this. And I think there's a lot of ownership on this. And, you know, Mel Brooks, in recent years, has made an amazing career of making a tremendously funny nights of him going out, screening a movie and doing a Q&A and listening to Mel Brooks tell a story. It's just, it's great. I read his book and Mel Brooks is a character. You know, he is as much, you know, he's not a director that stands separately from his movies. It is a Brooks film for a reason. Like he is a person that is as big as life. And that's why Gene Wilder didn't want him in the film because he didn't want to take it away. Although Mel Brooks did get in the film. Do you know how he's in the film? Oh, I do. Let's just play it right now. Rubbish. Mm, Well, you might say, but this is Transylvania. Aren't you our Frankenstein? You uh, seem unusually upset by this discussion. Not in the least. I find it extremely amusing, that's all. Well, this was fun. Yes, that is Mel Brooks doing a cat. And then earlier in the film, he also played the werewolves in the werewolf, werewolf scene. Like, that is Mel Brooks. You could hear it. I love that he did at least get in there just a little bit. But I think that that's a great example of one of the strengths of this movie, which is... A lot of the humor is done with like sound effects and pacing because they're not using the, the fanciest special effects because they can't. They're doing it pretty simply. They're doing it really straightforward. And so you have to create humor through 
almost the musical pacing of lines, like the way that that dart scene just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds with noises. You know, he's using all of your senses to make a scene funny. And I really appreciate that when a comedy does that, adding things that weren't there through sound effects to make it work. I mean, but it doesn't surprise me to, to frame Mel Brooks as the best talker in the world, because I think Mel Brooks has an argument for being the, the best talker in the world. I mean, he must be like the patron saint, right? If you're an improv guy, because I mean, he was doing improv. I think, I don't even know when the word improv began to exist, but we're talking about like the 1950s. He'd go to parties with Carl Reiner and Carl Reiner just made a game of introducing him as anybody he wanted. So he'd introduce Mel as a pirate or a sculptor or a poet or a wrestler or a heart surgeon, whatever he felt like. And it would just be his dare to Mel Brooks. They had to take over from there and carry the entire party on as though he was the person that Carl Reiner just threw at him at the last moment. And that became the basis of the 2,000-year-old man. Like, there, you know, these, these albums that they did, these party albums that they did. Like, Mel Brooks is, you know, incredibly quick and incredibly funny. And there's not enough time to get into how much of a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of guy he was. He worked harder than anyone. He was in the mix trying to get his stuff on the air, you know, when he was working for your show of shows. I think he had success, he had failure, and but he was the guy who kept on pushing forward. The fact that he made the producers, you know, was even this labor of love, you know, and or this idea of I can I I got this. I got this. I he is constantly kicking everything in front of him. He's a very inspirational story, you know, when you go back to, you know, how he grew up, but I think being in a writer's room if you've ever been in a writer's room, you know that you have to get your voice heard, but you have to get your voice heard and you have to also be liked, you know, and to walk that line is, I, I think it allows you to advocate for yourself, but also you got to sell it. And to be a great director, you got to get in there and make this studio buy a black and white movie, you know, and, and there is something about him that I think makes you feel like you're his best friend. He's going to be incredibly smart. And he, you know, he goes... He has this famous quote about taking notes, you know, where you just repeat back everything that the person who gave you the note says like, yes, yes, right. Yes, we need to do that. Oh, yes. Oh, of course. Great idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And then you make no changes and you give it back to them and they feel great. You know, like I think he's a person who knows how to massage an ego. Obviously, Sid Caesar, notoriously insane. Laughter on the 23rd Floor, which was a Woody Allen play, kind of captures the idea of what it was like to work in that world, you know, to calm down uh, volatile people, to pitch with the funniest people out there. And I think on top of that, you have this career where Mel Brooks is never afraid to surround himself with very funny people and cast this movie up. Like, he doesn't have to be the funniest person on set. I think he knows the better I cast this, the better I will look. Let them open it up. Let them you know, be free because like you said, as an improviser or as a person who can riff, he is going to take the best from everybody else and make the best of everybody else. What I think I really like about Mel Brooks that he brings to this story in collaboration with Gene Wilder, we can say all of that is, you know, Mel Brooks is a person who I think really associated comedy with, with death, with terror, with a lot of what this movie is even talking about. Like, you know, this is a guy who had to go and fight in World War II, who saw corpses everywhere. And he said that he used humor to deal with facing death. You know, that 
that people in his platoon would be like, we're going to get killed. We're going to get killed. We're never going to get out of this war. And Mel Brooks would say, nobody dies. It's all made up. And he would try to tell these sort of deadpan jokes because he thought otherwise everybody would just get hysterical. And there is this theme in here, you know, that's so much about about immortality. I mean, that's just like tied into the idea of Frankenstein in general. But I believe I believe the way that Gene Wilder is like, we should be immortal. I want to live forever. What can we do about the power of this? And that is why I guess I'm glad that they picked Frankenstein for the story, because I I think this might be the best one, the best story just in general to pick from all of the old classic universal monsters. I mean, do you think they could have done a Dracula that would have been as good? Well, I think the idea of Frankenstein is more interesting than a traditional monster movie, right? It's a science film. It's about creation, you know, and Dracula is about this magical beast who drinks blood and... um there's only so much you can do there. Obviously, what we do in Shadows did a great job of like showing you the other side of this. Right, the longevity, the eternal, the eternal life. To me, the interesting thing, and I think this is what is funny, is Gene Wilder comes up with this idea with the thought of what if I got the Frankenstein family fortune? And that to me is a funny comedic question. It's like, oh yeah, well, would I fall into the same traps? Well, maybe if I saw this thing, maybe I would. Like, you know, he I think that we buy into this character you know his his uh, his ability to disdain his family then be intrigued by his family then going full-on into being exactly the scientist that his grandfather was is a quick transition across the board um but in a weird way i think the ego that you see in that first scene like he stabs himself with the pen and doesn't react like that idea like he thinks he's better and he's trying to keep it all together does fall into this trap of oh i could do this better actually you know what i do have disdain for my 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 family who is you know bought a blight on society but i i got this and i like the idea of you know it's that joke i think sometimes too it's like you don't see that many hitlers anymore like there's not that many the hitler family name doesn't really go on like so frankenstein is the closest thing you could probably get to the hitler family name in sense of you know, this person whose name is synonymous with terrorizing a small community. So I also think that's really funny, too. I'm playing this for a reason, because one of the people doing the yelling is somebody living this life that we're talking about. It is an actor whose real name is Baron Clement von Frankenstein. And he said his family, it goes all the way back. Their baronage goes back to the 1600s. He claims that Mary Shelley used his family's name for the monster. He predates this whole story. And so he dabbles a little bit in acting and he agrees to play like villagers screaming at the monster from the bars. But I love that idea that this was a real family whose name got adapted into this. But okay, let's get back to the ego of it all, because I do think the ego is the most interesting part of Gene Wilder's character. You know, the scene that really pops out to me as one that I want to read all of this resonance in is the putting in the Ritz scene, because it's like we've had this tender moment where Gene is, you know, comforting the monster, saying, I know that you're a good guy. I know that you're a good boy, like very paternal, you know, because that is also part of the magic of Frankenstein. It's 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 Mary Shelley asking, what would men be like if men had control over life? And he goes straight from that to putting his son, I guess, in the language of the emotions of the scene, on display. But not only just in this like King Kong version of display, he's like, the challenge I want is for you to sing 
in tap dance because like what better says our standards of what a good sophisticated man is than something as inane as being able to tap dance. Not that I'm not jealous of the ability to tap dance, but it's this idea of like, what do we even gauge as the markers of civilization? You look good in a tux. Is there anything more just ludicrous on the face of it? Well, I think you're right. Like that shows civility, right? And that is what I think is so important about that scene. Yes, it's a funny scene, but it also, maybe I'm reading into it too much, which is the idea that we are more interested in, to put it in modern day terms, the clickbait than, or the showiness than the actual science. Like, who cares? Like, who cares that this is a dead man that they brought back to life? Can he sing and dance? Oh, now I'm on. Like, you know, there's something about that too. Like, we're always going to be engaged by the the sugar, not the actual substance, you know, or, you know, the dessert rather than the the, the vegetables. Exactly. And he has that line in there, even, even Dr. Frankenstein does, where he says, don't humiliate him. But he says, for safety's sake, don't humiliate him. It's not like he is emotionally protective of the monster. He just doesn't want everybody else to get hurt for the monster to go on a rampage. And there's this thoughtlessness to him that I think makes the character interesting. Because honestly, when you look at this character on paper, Dr. Frankenstein, he's a jerk. He's so much more of a jerk than the monster is. The monster is kind of sweet. The monster wants to please the little girl, throw some flowers, play on the seesaw. He's very nice to the blind man, even though the blind man is like pouring soup in his lap. He's sitting there trying to be polite, trying to be a lovely guest. He doesn't throw the girl down the well. He has a thought, but he doesn't do it. Yeah, but he is being so kind to people. Oh, my friend, my friend, you don't know what your visit means to me. How long I've waited for the pleasure of another human being. Sometimes in our preoccupation with worldly matters, we tend to forget the simple pleasures and the basis for true happiness. But yes, yes. He's being gracious. You know, he's he's walking out of this meal burned, not getting any wine, and still not killing Gene Hagman for doing any of this. And meanwhile, like Dr. Frankenstein would write a terrible Yelp review and lose his absolute mind. You know, he has no graciousness that the monster does. So for judging this character, here we go, reading too deep in it, but that's just like the beauty of, of Peter Boyle's performance, how human he invests this character. The monster is the kindest person in the whole movie. Well, I think that that's the beautiful payoff at the end. You know, we haven't really talked that much about the supporting cast and we've touched on them, you know, in, in moments, but Peter Boyle as... The monster, the Frankenstein's monster, has kind of a thankless role until you get to that end. And that monologue that he delivers when his brain is, you know, uh, I don't even know exactly what is happening there, uh, but his brain is getting <laughs> zhuzhed. He somehow exchanged with Gene Wilder and also calmer and nicer than yes. Gene Wilder. <laughs> yeah, I see that you are a demonstrator. <clears throat> For as long as I can remember... People have hated me. They looked at my face and my body, and they ran away in horror. In my loneliness, I decided that if I could not inspire love, which was my deepest hope, I would instead cause fear. But that monologue right there, that scene, speaks to me about the character of the monster. You know, we assume that he is evil, but... What we understand there is 
the trauma that he has as well. Like, I know it's silly to talk about the trauma of young Frankenstein's monster, but there is something really sweet about that scene. That monologue is beautifully delivered. And it is about the idea like, well, people thought I was a monster, so I'll become a monster, but I'm not a monster. All I want is a friend. And you have Gene Hackman, who's like, all I want is a friend, you know, and he's trying to be right. He's trying to, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are misunderstood here. And in these positions where they're trapped, I mean, we could go back to Gene Wilder being trapped with Madeline Kahn, who's so funny in this, the way that she is so off-putting, but yet not, it's, yes, it is over the, it's not over the top. I'm going to say it's not over. It's. It's just perfectly played the way, oh, no, 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 don't kiss, don't, oh, I, I want, you know, she just, it, it's like, oh, I, I feel that relationship and I see that relationship and you see like he can't get there. And then oh, her comic timing in the moment where she goes, no tongues. Oh, yeah. I suppose you're right. Of course I am. I always am. Now give me a kiss and say goodnight. No tongues. Because what she's doing that's so great is she's not just pushing him away. She keeps drawing him in and then pushing him away and yes. smiling so big and then pushing him away. And, and she's so great. And you talk about Blazing Saddle. She's phenomenal in that as well. But here, the real star of the show in many ways is Terry Gar. It's like her first introduction into, you know, it's a real mainstream introduction. And look, we've seen this role a lot before, which is, let's just be like, the hot girl, right? The hot girl in the comedy movie. And they subvert that by, you know, I think giving her this fun character to play. I think that she has a point of view. She, you know, she's a little bit more self-aware. And yes, she does fulfill some of those tropes. She's bouncy. She's bouncing everywhere. A hundred percent. But I also think that like you get something from her She's gorgeous and she's funny and she's bouncy, but she also has like she has something that is again again an edge. Buying into the scene. She's playing into the scene. She's not just a prop in the scenes. She's like fully there. Yes. You know? And I mean, she is a person who was, I think, born to entertain. Like her dad was a vaudeville performer. Her mom was a rockette. Her mom moved from being like a dancer or a showgirl to doing wardrobe stuff, which is how she heard about this role in the first place. She was like, Mel Brooks is doing a movie. You should go out for it. Terry Gard has been having a hard time really breaking in. And um, she said that she got her German because her mom knew a person who did shares wigs. And so she'd spent a lot of time with this German lady who did shares wigs. And she was like, you need a German? I know exactly the accent. And she just totally ripped her accent and then stuffed her bra with socks and got the part. And, uh, you know, a star... I would say is born. She'd be in maybe one other movie, but a star blossomed and she's fantastic in it. And I like this movie has, you know, Stone Cold, three great female comedy parts, which is, yeah, I mean, amazing. And it's, it's comedy from people that you don't even expect like Cloris Leachman, you know, who we talked about so much when we did our episode on last picture show, you know, where she played so much more of a dramatic role, you know, the, the mother who has an affair with like the young boy, here, just her pacing too. That scene where they're dragging out like the the good night with the brandy. Yes. Would the doctor care for a brandy before retiring? No. Thank you. Some warm milk, perhaps. No, thank you very much. No thanks. Ovaltine. Oh, Nothing. Thank you. 
the physicality of that, the way she like leans away slowly and he leans away slowly. And then she leans back and Jean leans back, leans away again, leans away again. You appreciate it because the camera is so still and you just get to watch these two people play off each other at almost like a snail's pace. It's like a snail's mating dance. I I do. I I love that. And I love how uh, she is. She's so conflicted. I mean, that that character is so conflicted and and crazed. And when she's kissing the painting and, you know, the way that she is, you know, into the monster, there's so much going on there. That's and and to me, the funniest one of the funniest jokes of the movie is every time her name is said out loud, the horses neigh and Winnie. Like uh, to me is like as a kid, I remember that being truly like the funniest, weirdest joke. Yeah, I heard she said once that Brooks told her that Blucher meant glue in German and that that's why the horses were winning every time her character's name is said. But then I heard that that's not what glue in German is. I don't know what glue in German is. I uh, I, I don't know, but I like that reasoning. And I and, and it may- <laughs> I like that she's from that family. I want to just go back to Terry Gar for a second, too. Talking about like the uh, conflicting stories here, right? You know, there's also this story about why Terry Gar was cast simply because Gene Wilder was like, oh, I'm just incredibly attracted to her. And I think that that would make for an interesting dynamic. Like, Mike can play that chemistry. And Mel Brooks is like, well, can she act? And he's like, who cares? She's hot. Uh, which is, you know, I mean, if we're going back, you know, obviously problematic. But he, she was originally cast to be Elizabeth until... Madeline Kahn. It's like, actually, I want to do that part. And Brooks is like, okay. And it's like, it swapped them out. Yeah, I mean, Madeline gets to have first call because of Blazing Saddles. They're like, okay, yes. okay, okay, whatever you want, you can get it. And then uh, basically, Brooks said, all right, can come back tomorrow and do a German accent. If you can do a German accent, we have another part for you. And so after reading the script, she knew it was all about boobs. Uh, so she, like you said, she, you know, really propped them up. And uh, came in with that accent. But it's like, by hook and by crook, she was able to step up to the challenge and get in there. And then, you know, this is the relationship, this relationship between Gene Wilder and Terry Garr. This is, you know, Gene Wilder's on the end of his seven-year marriage at this time, you know, when he's making this movie. Um, And the reason why they get a divorce is because his wife believed that, you know, Gene Wilder was cheating on her with Terry Garr. And maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But, uh they did continue to go out after the film, you know, so there you go. You can put your your thing in there. Uh, He didn't really ever speak about her publicly and they don't really talk about it that much, but I I just think it's such an interesting way that he approached his roles. You know, I do have to say one of the weirdest things about Gene Wilder and like our parasocial relationship with Gene Wilder is how invested people have gotten with who he's dated. Because I remember writing um, a piece about him in his obituary when he died a few years back. And the number one strange comment I kept seeing people say is like, at least now Gene and Gilda are in heaven together, you know, with Gilda Mm -hmm. Radner. And I kept thinking, after Gilda died, he got married and lived a whole other life. That's so mean to his wife to be like, oh, your husband is dead, but now he's with his ex. Well, I think a lot of people do that. I mean, People in their knee-jerk reactions, man, on the internet can sometimes be insane when you really think about what you're saying. Well, yeah. And I think that that's like, people just don't know what to say when people are grieving or when they're suffering loss. It's like, uh, but I do think that there was something interesting about Gene Wilder, who was like, fell in love with 
Terry Garr then fell in love with Gilda Radner and, you know, and Kelly LeBrock, when they did Women in Red, uh, you know, he was, she knew this guy could fall in love with me. Like, you know, it's like that, I think that that was part of like Gene Wilder got so into these parts that he often slipped, you know, into that. At least he liked funny women. I mean, even though Terry uh, really claims that she had no idea what a Schwanzucker was. I wasn't sure what it was. And I said, Mel, what's a Schwanzucker? And he said, you know, Schwan. And I, then when he said it, I knew. Is that a real word? I mean, look, as much as anything is, right? I mean, like, you know, I, I, think, you get, I think you get what they're trying to say. I mean, it's, it's Falbluck or glue. Like you said, who cares? You get the, you get the thought of it. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I will say is I often forget, like, maybe the last 10 minutes of this movie Like, I don't think about it at all. You know, obviously the monster now has thought, like after that monologue, there's like this little post, not post-credit because it's before the credits, pre-credit. But there's these two scenes, you know, one where it's like, oh, Gene Wilder has a bit of the monster in him and the monster has become this like put upon, you know, very uh, 1950s, you know, TV dad just reading the paper, ignoring his wife. And the wife is full on Bride of Frankenstein. Um, but that little moment that this whole movie, so smart, so funny. And yes, there's a lot of sex jokes in the movie, but it ends on a dick joke. It ends on like, well, what did you get from the monster? A big dick? Like, that's like, is that what the end is? Got a big dick? I mean, I, I kick this out there to the pharmaceutical companies who invented Viagra. Do you think there's a market if you transplanted your brain with a dead man? Where some people would say yes if it would give them a bigger dick. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that wasn't that the whole joke that um, that Bill Burr had. Like, you know, everyone's like, oh, I'm not going to get a vaccine shot. I'm not going to get a vaccine shot. But if there was a shot that would be like, hey, you could uh, get your perfect weight. People would be like, oh, fuck, I'll sign up for that. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Obviously, this movie touches on something in the zeitgeist. People want to see this kind of a movie because, you know, Blazing Saddles is already a hit. Uh, and this movie comes out also a hit in the same year. People, I think, are savvy enough to enjoy it. But I think the thing that links these two movies and what makes Mel Brooks movies, Producers, Young Frankenstein, and Blazing Saddles, I think are the three best Mel Brooks films because they tell a really compelling story. They are true films, right? Right, they're not like a collection of jokes. Like, I have a hard time thinking of Spaceballs as a real movie. Well, same thing with Robin Hood Men in Tights. or High Anxiety is a bunch of bits you know the gags and bits and i think that they always are winning because of these amazing performances but what i think all those films miss 
is a little bit more of a perspective. And, you know, if you look at Blazing Saddles, and at one point we should talk about Blazing Saddles because I think it's equally interesting. It's like there's a perspective there about telling a larger story about racism, right? It, you know, there is that's the core of that story. That's not a Mel Brooks core. He surrounds it with a lot of great jokes. You know, this is Gene Wilder as serious actor going, what if I did this? How would I be? Right. And then I think the producers is Mel Brooks's first attempt. This is producers is very much not a Mel Brooks film or what we know. If we look at the, the scope of Mel Brooks films, I would say that they go on a slide downward and not to say that like they get worse, but it's like producers is grounded in the real world. Crazy, you know, crazy things going on, but it's fully grounded. Blazing Saddles is like a take on the Western with a modern day point of view of like, well, what about all the black people? Like what, what happened to the, you know, what's that? Like, right. And then this is a sequel, like something going on. And from here on in after this, it's gag movies, it's gag movies, sketch movies, everybody that you love, you know, I think he tried to do a silent movie, but it just became gags, 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 gags. And I think he got further and further removed. I mean, is what you're saying, the more Mel Brooks became more Mel Brooks, the less good his films got? Is that what you're saying? I think that, and I say this as a giant Mel Brooks fan, I think something like History of the World is a great Mel Brooks movie because it works much more as a sketch film. And I think that that is where his bread and butter is. I think that when he has done these, these first three films are a lot more um, narrative-based. And I think that like the, there was a leaning towards going to an instinct of scary movie. You know, I, I I still hold up like Top Secret and Airplane as movies that have like a good narrative thrust to it, but they're nowhere near as, I think, interesting as Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles because they allow you to have these silent moments. There's moments in Blazing Saddles where the characters are just sitting. There are moments here in Young Frankenstein where we can just explore a character and not have to worry about a lot of jokes. And I feel like Mel Brooks was like, oh, I could just put more jokes in here. And then it dilutes a little bit of the emotional weight, you know? And I think you remember, oh yeah, that scene is very funny. Oh, that's an homage to this. Everything starts to become an homage or a take on Yoda yogurt, you know, or, oh, and you know, in Robin Hood, he did two arrows. I'm going to do three hours. You know, it's like everything became like a little call to or a reference of instead of a sandbox movie. Does that make sense? I feel like maybe you're talking around one of the big questions I had even doing this is in in, in all of the comedy horrors we've done, where is, where is that bullseye, if we're going to use the Robin Hood example, of hitting it exactly right? as opposed to making something that's too much of a parody, too self-aware. You know, there are moments of legitimate, actual cinematic beauty in Young Frankenstein. That 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 bit where they like sketch Frankenstein for the first time, like, oh, he could look like this. This is what he should look like. And the image is sort of wobbling back and forth, that sketch, and then it cuts to the swinging body. It dissolves just so beautifully to like the swinging, hanging corpse that they're going to use. Yeah. That is gorgeous. So the shot where you see... Uh, where you see Frankenstein for the first time between his huge feet as he's like lying on the bed. Yeah, oh, I love that shot. There are moments here where he just goes seamlessly into the story that he's trying to tell. And he's not saying, hey, look, it is the story. I I agree. I have a little experience at doing this 
when I did my show NTSF. And the rule that we would always say is, and I don't know if I'm, I, I'm saying I'm doing this perfectly either. I don't know if I had like emotional arcs. We were doing the, you know, obviously a 15 minute show on Adult Swim. So there's a little bit of a difference. But when we would write these episodes, we would always try to make sure that the story held water, that that was the most important thing. The story needed to be real, and then we could hang bits within the story. And I'll just bring my own example of it. Like, we're in San Diego. I'm like, what's in San Diego? Oh, okay. Like, maybe there's like a dolphin, and maybe there's a dolphin serial killer. And once we had dolphin serial killer, that was our instinct of the, the dolphins killing people. What's next? And then we're like, oh, we could do maybe like a little bit of a riff on Hannibal Lecter here. But we didn't come in going, let's do a Hannibal Lecter, Silence of the Lambs parody. It was like the story always led us to the jokes instead of the jokes being built around a shitty story. That would be my argument for, I think, the right, the sweet spot that is where you need to hit. And I think that, you know, Popstar, I'm bringing up Popstar again, does a great job. I think MacGruber does a phenomenal job. I think MacGruber, the television show, even continued to do a great job. It's like, it's not, there are things that are homages, but they're not just like a direct ripoff. And I think that Scary Movie got to that zone where it was like, oh, they did a scene where someone sat here. We're going to do a scene that someone sat here, but a bird's going to shit on them. You know, it's like, it became that kind of a thing. So I, I think it's, but it also means that those, that stuff works. It works. Well, but now I'm just like really going down an absolute rabbit hole of thought because now I'm thinking about like one of the ending scenes where Madeline Kahn is doing a lampoon of what sexy is when she's getting into bed with Frankenstein. And to me, it's just like, that is, that, that's my Ouroboros. I'm like, she's doing a lampoon of what people think sexy is, but she's doing it sincerely in a film that's a comedy about how this woman treats sex and where is reality. And now I feel completely upside down. Yeah. I, you know, but I think that like, but that's also like, I think a good performer. And this is again, going back to Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder is playing the character of Victor Frankenstein. He's not in a movie making fun of this character. He's not in a movie making fun of Frankenstein. He's grounding it in this, like, what if this character went, and yes, there are big moments and crazy moments. And, but like when he's again, going back to that scene, I love so much, you son of a bitch bastard. And he's banging on his chest. He's selling that. I think Leslie Nielsen did a great job in Naked Gun. I think Naked Gun kind of worked in that same way. And maybe maybe procedurals work a little bit better because there's like a beginning, middle, and end that are naturally built into it. Yeah. I think that's why Top Secret work even works better as a film than a- Airplane, even though it's less popular. Oh, you know, one of the things I did after I watched this for the first time is, you know, I looked at the way Gene Wilder screams, it's alive. Mm. <laughs> alive. <laughs> it's alive. It's alive! And then I was like, now I want to go and see how the 1931 James Whale version plays this scene. And I will say, 
I think you could swap out any of those screams and put it into the other scream and it would work. And that to me is marvelous. I mean, if part of the joke here is this frenzy, this sincere, legitimate frenzy that Gene Wilder builds to, you know, the one that he builds to right as he's like even saying like, this is the fateful day where his ego is really in control and he's conducting the thunderclaps, conducting the ridiculous sound effects. From that fateful day when stinking bits of slime first crawled from the sea and shouted to the cold stars, I am man. Our greatest dread has always been the knowledge of our own mortality. But tonight, we shall hurl the gauntlet of science into the frightful face of death itself. Tonight, we shall ascend into the heavens. We shall mock the earthquake. We shall command the thunders and penetrate into the very womb of impervious nature herself. In that speech, he's even giving self-conscious jokes about what Frankenstein is even about, penetrating into the very womb of nature. That's basically the same joke from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, where, you know, they're wielding around the chainsaw at crotch level. You know, being like, yes, we know what, like, the representational theme is here. You know, I am a man fucking life into existence by creating it in this story that Mary Shelley wrote about men creating life and the sex politics connected to it. And, like weapons and creation and stabbing are all dicks. Everything's a dick. Everything is a dick. Everything is a Schwan sticker. He is getting that joke in here, but doing it full on commitment, full on passion, full on sincerity. Yeah. And I think that that's true. Play it true. Play it real. And that I think makes a better parody genre, whatever mashup, whatever you want to talk about, you know? Um, and I think that you know, jokes will always be jokes. And I think that 30 Rock is like one of the funniest shows. They had like the best jokes, right? But there's a reason why I think something like Parks and Rec or even Friends resonates with culture more because those are characters that we get invested in. And I think if you can walk both lines of being invested in a character and their growth, and I, and not to say that 30 Rock was without this, it, it had it too, but it's like, but there is something about like the office and parks and rec. I'm committed to those characters of softer moments, not always needing to go for a joke. But I also think that, you know, I think there's type, there's room for all of this in the world, like just joke machine things. And that's why I would love to have maybe seen one or two more of these types of Mel Brooks films in there. But as a kid, I laughed my fucking head off at Spaceballs. That was the funniest movie ever. When I watch it now, I'm like, oh, it's a little weird it's a little like it's like it is truly like oh the lightsabers are dicks and they fight with their dicks i just remember being an ugly film like i don't remember it looking pretty at all it doesn't look like star wars it looks terrible well that's also i think something that happens too it's like oh it's a comedy you don't need to make it look good but there i think part of that is you want to make it look good i think that they i don't know yeah now i want to overlay a spaceballs version where it actually looks good and see if that changes anything yeah i just think it's like it's not to me there's no like one way to do it. You know, there's no, you can have something like sausage party that, you know, you feel for a package of hot dogs and buns. I love sausage it's party. so funny, but it's like, but you know, same thing. It's like, you can do all of this stuff. Like you can, you can, 
there are there are so many levels in which you can hit comedy. I think as long as you're consistent and but I do think you got to make people care. I think you do have to make people care about the story and the characters. And I think sometimes in big broad comedies that goes out the window. And unless you have somebody that's really holding down the fort in the center, and I do think that Leslie Nielsen is that. I also think that Julie Haggerty and Robert Hayes I think can do that. Like so sometimes like well maybe if you're going to have a lot of jokes, you just need to find that person that can ground it. You can build around them. It's like, there is something though about like heart. You need that. And I think that going back to my 30 Rock thing, Liz Lemon is that. We ultimately bond with Liz Lemon. And I love all the characters and they're really fun. And I think as that show expanded, you get to see more and more. But that. Yeah, we don't agree with everything she does, but we like right. her. Yeah, right? I think you, yeah, you need that thing. And it like, I think that that's why even though it's written by Craig Mazin, you know, not another superhero movie or not another teen movie, those movies, you know, fall apart is because there is no nothing. There's nothing there. That's why Borat's so fucking funny. You care about Borat. Like Borat could do anything. And it's, and it works because you're like, oh, I love this. I love Borat. I mean, you're making me want to go on like on a tear of comedies that I think really push the envelope because I would love to do Borat. I would love to do Sausage Party. Yeah. And I kind of want to even start by Doing Blazing Saddles. I would love to sit in this I love moment that. Of, yeah. of Mel Brooks suddenly just being like, pow, pow, watch me make two landmark comedies that are so radically different in style and in theme. Are you down with me to do Blazing Saddles? I do think there's going to be a different discussion to be had about Blazing Saddles. And maybe we could decide even between ourselves, like, which is our favorite one. I and mean, if we do that, then I'm going to want to throw on the producers. And then we'll just, net, we'll be here forever. But maybe we will be. I think, let's see. Let's make sure people are listening. As long as <laughs> people are listening, we can do it. All right, Amy. Uh, but, you know, out of curiosity, was it beloved by critics? Oh, it was very beloved by critics. The only negative review I could find just said, was just terse and really dismissive. It was from uh, The Hollywood Reporter. And it said, it is good-natured, low-brow, backlot, hit or miss humor with no cumulative effect beyond its succession of hard work jokes. Kind of sounds like he's describing Spaceballs. Uh, he says, Madeline Kahn deserves a more original character than her tease fiance role. Cloris Leachman is misused in broad caricature. Uh, as a police chief, Kenneth Morris needs to, do, needs to do more than simply goose up his mechanical limbs like Dr. Strangelove. And then he says, director Brooks executes several good jokes on horror movie style, but his film has no distinctive visual style of its own. Interesting. I mean, I can't imagine seeing this film in 1974 and thinking it has no style of its own. <laughs> but again, I also think that the one thing that's so hard to talk about is comedy. Is this movie funny? To me, it is. Is it funny to you? I don't know. And you can't, like, comedy is something that is completely subjective. And it's the thing that I think scares the most people because whenever, as anyone who knows who's ever gotten notes in comedy, your point of view, like, I think the best notes in this field are often come from someone who's like, ah, if you think it works, you know, and, and, and that's it, you know, or just like, or following the story. But like, once you start to get into, I don't know if that joke is funny. That's when you start to get into tricky positions because, well, what makes you the judge of what's funny? Like what's funny to you or how you read it is very subjective. Uh, I, you know, and I've dealt with notes like that my entire career. You know, I, I may have brought this up on the show, but I'll, I'll bring it up here because it's a perfect example. It's like, I remember getting a note on the sketch that we did for Human Giant where we played hot air balloon cops and uh, hot air balloon cops, we did high speed chases. So in hot air balloon doing high speed chase is kind of impossible because we can't really direct it. And we're, you know, at the whim of the wind. And I remember like the executive going like, 
I just don't think it makes that much sense. It's like, why would you, why wouldn't you just be in a car? Right. Well, that, but that's the joke. He's like, yeah, I just feel like, I don't know. It, it just feels like um, too weird of a premise to be hot air balloon cops. And it's like, it's tricky. You know, like no one has the ultimate, it's funny, it's not funny. That's why I always say like, look, whatever you think is funny is funny. There's an arena full of people to go see Hannah Gatsby. There's an arena full of people to go see Dave Chappelle. And there's an arena full of people to see John Mulaney. Maybe someone enjoys all of them. I kind of do. Well, then that's why I'm glad that we're going to do Blazing Saddles because the number one thing I keep hearing is you can't make this film today because nobody will laugh and nobody will know if it's funny. And that does bum me out. But I am glad that we have a Blazing Saddles. But I want, to, I want daring things. And so I'm ready to watch this movie and talk about the big question. Can things even stay funny if they were once funny? Yeah, it's a tricky question. There you go. I mean, what and, you know, and, and can you make, does we get in that zone where we have to apologize for things, you know, who knows, you know, like, or that, you know, what was funny then can't be funny now. And it's a tricky thing. It's a big conversation. Uh, but Amy, this is lovely. I can't wait to get into Blazing Saddles here. Take a listen to a trailer. He rode a blazing saddle. He wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. What's your name? Well, my name is Jim, but most people call me Jim. Thank you. Oh, okay, give us a hand here. All right, sir. Work, 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 work. Okay, folks, let's wipe them out! The heroic sheriff rallies his citizens in the wildest finish the West has ever seen or the movies have ever shown. Oh! 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 Have you ever seen such cruelty? All right, next week we go back to Brooks' film uh, to listen to this. And, um,. I'll just say one thing, one memory of Mel Brooks, uh, who is very much alive. And I think that you saw so much great Mel Brooks stuff as Nick Kroll and Ike and Wanda Sykes did uh, History of the World Part Two, is that he loves comedy. He loves comedy so much. When we were talking about a project, he knew people that I only knew in the comedy scene. He sat behind me at a screening of Tropic Thunder when we were just, when Ben Stiller was screening it just for family and friends and laughed his head off. And it was so fun. And I feel like the one amazing thing I want to say about Mel Brooks is he is a champion of voices and comedy and he just wants to be surrounded by it and to be as old as he is, as vibrant as he is, and as interested and invested in that world still is just utterly amazing. And, uh, a big, I salute Mel Brooks. Okay. Well, then let's keep the salute going because it's making me really happy. All right, great. Let's do it. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are 
absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.